0: I think I'm having an art attack! What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, art historian Lizzie Dastin, and myself, Justin Bua. Today, Lizzie has chosen this topic, which is art, Freud, the intersection, of Freud art.
1: <laughs> frart,
0: <laughs> frart, Freudian art. I don't even think Freud liked art. Oh, However, probably he loved art. But Freud produced, before we even get into that, let's say that Freud's grandson, Lucian Freud, Sigmund Freud's grandson, Lucian Freud, is considered to be one of the greatest painters that we've had in the last hundred years. I mean, by a lot of people, he was a goddamn good painter. He's a real guy who's like, you can't say that guy could not paint. That guy was what a painter he I was I would agree
1: with that goddamn yeah. good painter and it's interesting because Lucian has extended the psychological interest of his grandfather in his own portraiture often his works are just deeply steeped in macabre and they're hard to look at they're real they're raw they're visceral the paint has built been built up so there's a thick impasto beyond
0: and- impasto it's like i think he might have been one of the first people i've ever seen do it to the point where it was like caked on To that level, and it would kind of, he would do it in a way that was almost excessive. Everything was excessive, like the the models were these, sometimes could be these really fat, 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 fat people of excess, and the paint was excess. Everything was excess. Like, uh, It was beautiful, though. I mean, fucking good work, and he could really draw well. And the interesting thing, just a side note about Lucien Freud is when you look at his early work he really didn't get good until he was in his 40s he was he was not a good draftsman he became a really good draftsman and painter because he worked really hard you could see a lot of that in his work
1: well he also explored self-portraiture and i think mm-hmm. that when he developed through you know the maturation of time that his art also echoed that and you can see that in his studies of himself. And when he's in his 50s and his 60s, then it gets real deep.
0: Yes. That's when he got to be really good.
1: But moving backwards a little bit, where did he get this interest in psychology? Perhaps from his grandfather, who I hate to use the word seminal, but he was the seminal.
0: Can't believe you're using that word. I know, but it's
1: appropriate because it comes from semen and Freud is all about sex. There you go. (laughs) So I actually think he is the the only person that I will about whom I will say seminal. And he developed his theory of psychoanalysis and pre-sexual selves. And he divided the unconscious in these three categories, the id, the ego, the superego. And I have a very rudimentary understanding of this, so I can talk about it if you, if you want, or we can talk about it together. But what I'm most interested in is how these theories manifested in contemporary art at the time, specifically through the work of the surrealists. So to explain the id, the ego, and the superego, I'm going to use a really weird example, but it's just one that came in my head. So don't psychoanalyze it. The id, let's say you're a kid and you have, you're excited about something and you have the impulse to masturbate. That is the id. It's sexual, it's primal, it's an instinct, it's a drive. And Freud talks a lot about the sex drive and then later the death drive and how the two are intertwined. So the ego would say, hey, you're outside, we're not supposed to masturbate outside And then the superego is sort of the judge that figures out those two opposites, from reason and the illogical drive. So that's kind of how I think about these things, how I divide them. And the id is probably the area of the unconscious that's most interesting to artists, because that may represent your true unfettered self. So a lot of people like Dali and Man Ray and Duchamp to a certain extent, they were exploring tapping into that self that only is available to us as adults once we're asleep. Because kids, and Freud is talking also about this, the sexuality of children. And that goes back to the id and the fact that when we're young, our instincts are more prominent. And as we become older, our ego and superego, they Mm -hmm. take over because of cultural norms and expectations that are placed upon us. So childhood represents that true self of sexuality and of these instincts. And that's also where the Oedipal complex comes up, which is our desire to, oh, it's so weird. The Oedipal Complex is weird, but it's wanting to have sex with your mother and kill your father is a very, mm-hmm. very basic sense. But, very,
0: very, you know, normal, normal. Well, it
1: is. It yeah. is actually normal.
0: Is it? Oh, Jesus <laughs> yeah, but, Christ. Who's normal?
1: <laughs> well, in a more general sense, then, it's about having aggression towards your parent who mm-hmm. shares the sex that you do. Mm-hmm. And then a fascination in almost this psychosexual way with the parent of the opposite sex. So
0: let's talk about how this plays a role in art and how he influenced, how Freud's concepts influenced uh, artists. Because we see that historically, for example, with cubism, how, uh, how certain things... Uh, how certain periods, the agricultural revolution, or, for example, going back to cubism, it was the, um, the theory of relativity influenced Picasso's idea and Brock's idea of cubism. So how does Freud coming onto the scene start to influence the work of artists?
1: Well, first I would say just this concept of scopophilia, which is the desire to gawk. And you see that in a lot of surrealist work because there's an increased attention on bodies, on sexuality, on fetish, which is another trope that Freud often explored. And so Freud's big thing was dreams. And when we dream, that's when we're able to escape into ourselves, to ground into who we really are. And that was the concept that the surrealists, they picked up and ran with. And there's a a film by Dali that I think illustrates this particularly well. I think it's called Un Chien Andaluz: the Andalusian dog, and it starts with a woman whose eye is slit with a razor. And so I think that frames this no. concept perfectly because Dali is saying only when we let go of the logical trappings of sight can we really start to see and mm. his most iconic painting is of course The Persistence of Memory and that one is this dreamscape that's about Dali's fear of his sex drive and fear of the death drive again mm. all of these are tethered back to Freud and so the short answer to your question is how does this manifest and manifests through dreams And the surrealists, that's what they're painting. They're painting with this automatic way where they're not thinking about anything. They're Mm -hmm. feeling and they're translating that feeling onto the surface.
0: I see. So are there, there other? I mean, because today, obviously, I think that just the way we live, we're all influenced by Freud. You know, Freud has come into every part of, Culture. I mean, he's, his, his stuff is so accepted now that we take it for granted, you know, so we can't even imagine the fact that uh, these artists, there was some outside source or some outside theories that have influenced the way their brushes move up and down on the canvas. You know what I mean? It's like that pervasive in terms of how, how uh, important this information was.
1: Very. And it's interesting because even though Freud's theories were developed over 100 years ago, they still haven't been debunked, really. And people do tease them out and they find blind spots. One big one is with regards to gender. Freud said that the egg is passive and the sperm is active and therefore women are passive and men are active. And these theories were completely lambasted, especially in the 1970s, by French feminist thinkers. So Freud wasn't perfect, but of course. I do think that there's still tremendous value in his theories. And it's so cool to see them visually play out in surrealist art, which I think we should talk about more specific examples. But one thing I wanted to say mm-hmm. in the beginning, you were joking, but you said that Freud hated art. And actually, I remember when I went to Vienna and I saw Freud's studio or his his um, office. And the only thing I really remember is that he had a print of Goya's The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters. And I remember mm, thinking, oh my a- God, that is perfect. It is brilliant. And if you don't know the work, it's a self-portrait. It's a print. And it's Goya sleeping, but sleeping chaotically with all of these monsters coming out behind him. And so I think that work... Is really about tapping into yourself through your dreams. I think that I think that was an etching.
0: It was a black and white etching.
1: I just know it's a multiple. Yeah. Oh, uh,
0: so yeah. So that's an etching. Yeah, I, that work is very, very dark and very gruesome. And it's also like all of these fears and these violent and perhaps, you know, his his all these different archetypes within himself, you know, all of these different parts of himself that are coming out at night, you know, not just monsters, but maybe perhaps his own monsters. Oh, yeah, his own
1: Pandora's box. We can't escape ourselves when we sleep. No. And Goya illustrated that, and then Freud really just framed it psychologically, and then the Surrealists took that framework and then painted their own work. So there's a lovely synergistic relationship between Mm. art and theory and then art again, and so that's why that image of Goya in Freud's office has really stuck with me because it just was mm, was so profound. Sense. And going to the surrealists, there, there's some analytic surrealists, and that would be the work of Dali. So analytic surrealism or naturalistic surrealism just means you look at it and you know what you're seeing. And it may be confusing, like his persistence of memory, with this weird shape in the foreground, and we see clocks, but they're melting. But we still know that it's a clock. We still know that we see a tree and a Mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of surrealism is called biomorphic surrealism. And that would be typified by somebody like Juan Miro, Mm -hmm. where it's more, it looks like a doodle, like this automatic expression of the unconscious.
0: Yeah, or it looks a little bit like a mobile, like an Alexander Calder mobile. But yeah, uh when you go back to that Man Ray, that Man Ray painting
1: photograph of
0: oh yeah, right, of Minotaur, which is so weird cuz I was looking at it and if you guys want to check this out, it's really trippy, but look at it from far away. If you look at Man Ray's Minotaur, it's literally uh a woman holding her arms up, but if I the whole time I didn't know it was that, I thought it was a bull. I thought it was a Minotaur because I couldn't see it. And then I got up close. I was like, whoa, that was a body. But do you think that was really influenced by Freud?
1: Yes. Oh my God. The Minotaur.
0: Yes with a Z?
1: Yes. So much so that it was yes. (laughs) Yes. I do. All right. So Minotaur was the surrealist publication. It's where people wrote manifestos and Mm. where they reproduced images of their work. And if you think about a Minotaur, he represents or the the myth of the Minotaur and Theseus from antiquity represents this collision between the rational self and Mm -hmm. the irrational truth. So the rational self would be Theseus, the guy who wanted to outsmart the labyrinth and outsmart the king, Minos, I believe. And then he was the one who slayed the Minotaur because he was given aid by the king's daughter Ariadne. So that's rational logic. And then the irrational self, the id, is the minotaur, this beast who operates by instinct and passion and drives alone. And so the, this story was entirely influenced by Freud. And then also this concept of doubling. You mention it looks like a bull, but then you realize it's a body. And this duality of self is it shows up in a lot of surrealist work, and that was initially framed by Freud.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful, absolutely brilliant.
1: And provocative, and I think that's really important. Surrealism is often talked about alongside Dada, and we've already done an episode on Dada, but the key difference is that Dada's intention was more political, and the intention of surrealism is very sexual, We have a lot of fetish in surrealist work, which is another Freudian concept. And kind of funny because people talk about a foot fetish a lot, but Mm -hmm. I think by nature a fetish has to be about something that is not on the body. It's not a Mm -hmm. body part. It's something that we attach to the body or can apply to the body. Mm -hmm. And so a foot fetish, unless you're talking about a... Uh, it, a foot fetish is not a thing unless your foot is not attached to your body, unless it's a prosthetic foot.
0: Are you, are you saying that without Freud, though, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it. And I think everybody out there who's listening to this and I look, I, I think that these analogies make sense to me. But without Freud, without the advent of this whole different way of thinking, do we get surrealism? Or does it just never happen? Never happened. Wow. So Freud, without Freud, that never happens.
1: I think so because art so is you a product of its time. So are saying that
0: Jews are probably the greatest thinkers of that time? You got Einstein, <laughs> you got Freud, and who else? You got and Car- Boa. And, and and Karl Marx.
1: Oh uh, yeah, definitely. T- so you
0: got those three people who really changed the way that people are thinking.
1: The way that they're thinking, the, the way that they're producing, exactly. the way that they're creating everything, of course. And art is so much a product of society, and Freud is shaping society.
0: So now we're taking that. Now every nobody's thinking about that. The people now who are doing surrealism. There's a lot of artists out there who are doing surrealism. A lot, and certainly a lot of artists that are influenced by surrealism. Tons. I wonder if they even nod to Freud at all. Without Freud, they wouldn't even be able to to be thinking that way. Or they wouldn't have the liberty, the freedom, because they were riding on the shoulders of giants.
1: And but not thoughtful. Right. About the, who those giants were influenced by. Yeah, it's true. I think that surrealism is a very easy aesthetic to quote because it's sexy, and everybody loves to see the unfettered self represented visually.
0: I think it's easy to do it, too, to be honest.
1: It's a, Yeah, maybe. You know what
0: I mean? It's kind of an easy subject to float a skull in outer space, you know, or something, you know, to, to, to do a dream-like thing, to not root it in reality, because then you're not dealing with certain lighting effects and atmosphere, and you don't have to place it in reality, you know, and that alone, you don't have to deal with certain... Mechanics uh, of the technical as a painter, so you just go like, "Yeah, let's just float it in uh, outer space, and uh, that'll be what it is." And I can light it however the fuck I want to because, you know, I don't want to have to deal with the natural way of of dealing with it, and then it becomes something more, something more like spiritual and other dimensional.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that. More than any other art form in contemporary parlance, surrealism and pop art have both been very bastardized, where yeah. the versions that artists create today yeah. are bastardized versions of the movements when they were originally created. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and so because I think... Because it's easy to do. It is easy-er and to do.
0: Yeah, easy-er to do, and that's a little bit like hip-hop. Hip-hop is so bastardized today that, you know, everybody does it. Like I'm just going down street just the chilling am my n' going on the months and in they going to get, you know wow. yeah. and then next thing you know it's like you're on the radio and it's all about at that point it's all about production you know it's all about the producer the beats and and then marketing you know and then the image a lot less about the actual technical facility of uh, of rap and by the way that being said there are some mumble rap stuff that I really love out there but my analogy is that, much like surrealism, you know, people don't think about. You think any of these rappers now think about the old school people where it came from? Is anyone thinking about Cool Herc? Anyone thinking about Flash? You know, anyone thinking about the shoulders of giants that they climbed on? No, of course not, because they think that they are. And artists today do the same thing. They're certainly not thinking. Well, the most. Most artists are not thinking, oh, Freud was such a big influence on me and, you know, going right to the going right to the source. They're just climbing through the weeds and just going right to the wellspring, drinking from the water. That's where they should be drinking from.
1: Yeah, they should be. And I'm really glad that you're calling attention to that because Freud is the source. He was very self-consciously the source for Dali and Miro and Magritte. And all of the people that we so identify with surrealism who are now quoted in contemporary art without any sort of acknowledgement of that psychoanalysis that made it all possible. So I, I think we have to talk about Freud. And it it was sort of a, a funny topic, or I think that it becomes a really intellectual topic because Freud is a theoretician. He never actually produced art. But that doesn't matter. His ideas produced art.
0: Yeah. Well, much like I said earlier that with Cubism, without Einstein and his theory of relativity, you know, is is Picasso, is Brock, are are a lot of those people producing that genre? I don't really think so. You know, because that was a real taking a theory of relativity and putting it into visual context, looking at a still life from 20 different angles. And then all of a sudden, you have this abstract, cubistic, visual mindscape. But that's Einstein. So is it fair to say, without Einstein, there's no cubism? Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's interesting. Without a Jew, there's no Spaniard creating a movement. (laughs)
1: See, Jews
0: (laughs) and Spaniards. That's my blend right there, guys. That's a good one. That's a good blend. That that comes together in many ways.
1: So let's talk about the actual painting that is perhaps the most iconic version of surrealist art made in the, the 30s. The 20s and the 30s. Those were really the years of surrealism. And that would be Dali's persistence of memory, which is a tiny canvas. And I think that that is actually appropriate to mention because dreams are the most intimate thoughts that we have. They're just for us. We barely even share them with our rational selves because often we forget them the moment we wake up. And so I think that intimacy is appropriately reflected in the small-scale nature of the canvas. But people forget or maybe are surprised to learn that this painting is so small because it is so iconic. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed with the Mona Lisa, we assume that the bigger the painting, the more famous the work. So it's a small painting at MoMA in New York. And it is of a barren landscape. There are cliffs in the far background, water that is incredibly still. There isn't any movement in the entire composition. We have a tree without any kind of branches. Everything is dead or in some kind of process of analytic decay. It feels like a wasteland. And Dali has examples of his iconic dripping clocks and if you think about just a clock that's melting it becomes functionless it is a functional object that is rendered functionless and that's important and there are flies circling the clock and then there's another pocket watch and ants are crawling over that and so there's just a lot of decomposition in yeah, this work
0: this is uh this is obviously a very iconic painting that every Every college kid hung on their dorm, <laughs> you know, because they said this is one of the highest selling posters in the in the college market. Because every kid can kind of like, the, as you're going through that phase, you can can relate to this. It's not because every kid is dreaming; it's because every kid is smoking tremendous amounts of weed. And so, <laughs> I feel like that that's like, yeah, man, that represents my entire universe, man. It's like time and people want me to be somewhere, and you could just kind of project your own <laughs> bullshit onto it. But this is one of the, you know, the, this is a painting that I have to ask you because I don't understand it. But what, and everybody knows this painting out there. So you can go look up Dolly Persistence of Memory in 1931. But you guys know this painting of clocks melting. But what is the clock melting in the middle? It looks like it's melting on a weird uh, sea creature, mud guppy.
1: Oh my God, I'm of, so what happy is you that? asked.
0: There's two. That's my first question. And the other one is, what are all of those ants doing yeah. in, that, in that or on the outside of that
1: bottle thing? Oh, that's the pocket watch. And they're on the outside of it? Yeah, they're swarming on the outside of this pocket watch. So again, it's about the futility of time okay. and the death of the future drive toward the death drive. So what is that? What did you call it? A guppy, a sea guppy? Mud guppy. A mud guppy. Remember mud
0: guppies were the no. original, out <laughs> adi- the original supposedly uh, fish that came out of water to become a mammal? That was called a mud guppy. Oh, yeah, yeah I that see a, that. That was a mud guppy. Because so that actually... look like, is, looks a little like a mud guppy seal piece, uh, leather balloon deflated. Mm. But what is it? I don't know.
1: Well, you are energetically getting close to what it is, especially oh. when you use the word deflate. So what it is, is a flayed <laughs> abstracted version of Dali. It is a self-portrait that references his fear of his own sexual impotence. So when you say deflated, that made me laugh. That's kind of awesome. And it reminds me there is a historical precedent to flaying your own skin and rendering that in a painting. And the best example is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Not the ceiling, but one of the flanking walls, he yes. represents himself as oh, the wow. flayed body of St. Bartholomew. So is that where he's getting it from? Yeah. Art historically, that's where he's getting it from. But really, he's getting it from Freud because it's all about the sex drive and the death drive. That is what this painting is. And so it's funny because you're right. Every college kid has this on his or her dorm. But yeah, they do. really, it's not exactly a college thing that you want to celebrate. It's like, hey, look, I'm impotent and I'm afraid of dying.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think college, though, you're you're going through your that time of your life. It's a coming of age time where you're realizing, like, my, you know, I do have uh, an expiration on my life. And you start to come into uh, that kind of awareness.
1: Well, sure. But I don't think that college students have the awareness of this particular painting. I think it's more like what you said. Hey, I don't want to be anywhere and time should stop and. I'm on drugs.
0: Yeah, when mushrooms are mushrooms make me feel great. (laughs) And whoa, with mushrooms, things do melt. You know what I mean? So it's like that represents me, man. These mushrooms are so cream. Dolly was and that's why everybody says Dolly was on drugs. It's like, and Dolly said himself, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. So everyone's like, man, Dolly must have been on some mushrooms and gone to Peru (laughs) to do some ayahuasca, man. But dude, Dolly never went to Peru to do ayahuasca. No, he, he read just, theory. He read <laughs> Freud, motherfucker. He read Freud. Right? Yeah. So tell me what else. Tell me what else about. Tell me who else. Magritte, sinepan peep.
1: Sisi nepazum peep. Sisi nezopazum peep. That I don't necessarily think is the best example of Freudian analysis, but it is a beautiful surrealist canvas. So we should definitely talk about it. This work, I think, is one of the funniest and also one of the most revelatory paintings of the 20th century. So it is a tightly rendered image of a smoking pipe. And then in French, he writes with precision, this is not a pipe. Mm-hmm. Ceci n'est pas un pipe. Which is funny because you're like, yeah, it's a pipe. It's obviously a pipe. It right. looks like it could be an advertisement for a pipe. That's but how you- much
0: of a pipe it is.
1: Exactly. It's, it's super (laughs) pipey. But if you think about it, it's not really a pipe. It is an image. It's a Mm. representation of a pipe. And so Magritte through this work Mm. gets deep into conceptual thought of what is real. Mm -hmm. And then artists in the sixties and the seventies, like Kosuth would take this to another level. It's a sign versus a signifier versus a referent Mm. and which one is which. And I think that Magritte is very forward-thinking in this thought process through this work.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that this painting is not necessarily influenced by Freud. No, no, right. it's not. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was and saying. By it's the not way, exactly that, ju- sexual. And not just because
0: you put a phallus in your painting, don't pretend <laughs> that you're influenced by Freud because they've been doing that way... Go back to Africa. you know, Go back to some of the first Mayan, Sumerian uh, sculptures and... All of the idolatry there is just like they did so they had so much sexuality going on that Freud Freud was just analyzing it and getting into a different space, but you know in terms of sexuality uh, that 's not always just Freud, you know what I mean
1: no, no, definitely not, but I think I'm rubbing off on you a little bit if you saw a phallus in this pipe
0: i do <laughs> that's
1: I, awesome. yeah, I mean
0: like I, I definitely do it 's just very. You know, I'm a. I always loved Magritte. I always loved how weird he was and how he was able to play very simply with your mind. And I, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a of a visual mind guy. You know, he he likes to do what I like to call visual puzzles. You know, and I think that that's really cool. Uh, painting puzzles, visual puzzles, and there's a place for that. You know what I mean? And I think he was. Uh, I think he was definitely. Starting something that be, that you know people took into another another space. Magritte is his own lane. He was another dude who was in his own lane. Yeah, he was part of the surrealist movement, but he did his own thing. And Dali too, you know. And Dali did his own thing. And and yet all of them, without, with or without knowing it, were like you said influenced influenced by Freud. So would you like to some you know have some last words here because we're you want to say sure, something I else will,
1: i will end with a visual okay if you take away anything about freudian psychoanalysis think of an iceberg he thought about the mind using that language so the top of the iceberg the minuscule amount of ice that you can see that is your conscious mind and the moment where the ice plunges into the water or that intersection between water and mass, that would be your subconscious. And so it's very, very small, very thin, very close to the conscious mind. And then the beautiful space of the actual iceberg that sunk the Titanic, that is the unconscious. Mm. And that is where Freud finds all the power. That's where your id lives. Mm. That's where your ego is. That's where your superego is.
0: Awesome. So guys, you heard it here, the intersection of Freud and art. Without Freud, there's a lot of art we're not getting, and we got to think about that stuff. The other thing we want you to think about is, we do this for free because we love it, we live it, and this is our life. But all we ask for you is to write us a review. Take a little bit of time, come up with something in your mind, and write it down on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Just write us a review
1: come up with something with your unconscious mind and then write it with your conscious.
0: Don't get too Freudian though, because that's disgusting. (laughs) Disgusting. But write something beautiful. Okay, guys. Thank you. Peace.